You're listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. God of all things. Now, this might sound obvious, but in my study this week, I was struck by this simple reality that, that God actually didn't need to make a material world. He could have made an entirely spiritual universe with no matter and no physical laws. He could have made the angels and just quit while he was ahead. But he didn't stop there. He created this vast universe with a multitude of textures. Think about the trees and the rocks and the mountains, all the shapes and then the smells. What about food with millions of different flavor profiles and and different combinations, a 3D world in this beautiful multi-technicolor? The things that God has made are incredible. Andrew Wilson argues in his book, and I believe this to be true, that things don't exist for their own sake, but to draw us back to God, to draw us back to the one who made them. St. Augustine said it like this. He said that the gifts of God in creation are like a boat that takes us back to our homeland, a means of transportation that can and should be celebrated, but should never be mistaken for the destination itself. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He says it's like following sunbeams, following the sunbeams back to the sun so that we can enjoy not just the object of goodness, but the source of goodness. And so creation preaches to us, the things of God reveal the God of things. And Jesus' own teaching is full of things. Think about it. You You have sheep and birds and flowers and coins and seeds. There's salt and light. There's rain. There's sunrises. And so we're going to explore a number of these things in the coming weeks. And our hope is that through this series, we'll get a deeper understanding, not just of Scripture, but of the world that we live in, and ultimately the God who made it all. So with all of that being said, first on the chopping block today is pigs. <laughs> this is a fun one. And so, so as we get started, if you have a Bible handy, why don't you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10. And while you're turning there... Just a little bit of context about what's happening in around this section of scripture that we're going to look at together today. The book of Acts, uh, as a whole, it kind of gives us this glimpse into the early church, the first Christians. It's almost like a biography of sorts into the life of of this community of believers. Uh, They start as just a small group in an upper room praying and seeking God. But throughout the book, throughout Acts, we see this growing movement of men, women, and children who are actively participating in God's redemptive work on the earth. In the first couple of chapters, a lot of amazing things happen. Jesus ascends into heaven, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers his church, his disciples, to be a, a witness And then those next few chapters, there's amazing healings and signs of the kingdom of God breaking in. People are getting saved and new people are being added to the church every single day. And they're learning to love each other. And they're learning to live in community. And they're learning to live out these teachings of Jesus with one another. Interestingly, up until Acts chapter 10 that we're going to look at right now, the emphasis is on Jewish Christians. Those who were Jewish descent who'd been awaiting the Messiah and received Jesus as that Messiah had had received Jesus as that Savior who would rescue them and redeem his people. The Jews had always seen themselves as kind of the exclusive people of God. And so then as they moved from being Jewish to Christians, to followers of Jesus, they maybe just assumed that this was their Messiah, this was their Redeemer, but didn't recognize the implications that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would have for all people. And then you come to Acts chapter 10, and we're introduced to this new character. He's a Roman, a centurion, and his name is Cornelius. 
And Cornelius is a good man. He loves God. He's generous with his wealth. He cares for the poor. And an angel of the Lord appears to him in a vision and tells him to go and find Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. And so Cornelius, he instructs his men to do as the angel is told, to go and find Peter. He's living at a house by the sea. And and that brings us to verse 9 of chapter 10. This is a pretty pivotal part of the story of the church. So listen to these words as they're read. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Pigs. I think it might be true that there's maybe no animal that's dirtier or smellier or uglier than a pig. They roll around in the mud, they eat their own poop. When they're clustered together, you can smell them for literally kilometers away. I grew up in a small town in southwestern Ontario, and in that whole region, it's called Huron County, it's 90% farm country. And so you get all the smells, the good and the bad, mostly bad, and whether it's fertilizer season with cow manure or chicken farms or a hog farm, there's no shortage of smells, especially in the spring and summer. And the worst of them all, in my opinion, the most distinct of them all is pigs. The word pig has also been coined in a lot of slang phrases that have a pretty negative connotation. For example, when when you're describing a mess in your home or something like that, you might say, it's like a pigsty in here. Or if you take four or five or maybe six desserts in a buffet line. Do you even remember buffet lines? This is from way too long ago. But if you take a few too many desserts, you might say, like, I feel like such a pig. Or even Jesus himself references pigs in his teachings in Matthew's gospel where he says, don't throw your pearls before the swine. There's billions of people around the world who avoid eating or even touching pigs for religious reasons, considering them just filthy and untouchable. But on the other hand, they taste so, so good. I think about pork belly or ribs in the smoker, lechon for you Filipinos. Or or how about the smell of bacon in the morning accompanied by fresh coffee and the splattering sound of fried eggs? How can something that smells so bad when it's alive smell so great when it isn't? How can death transform something that's filthy and untouchable to a taste bud bud masterpiece? Okay, hold that thought for a moment. We're going to come back to it. But, But pigs under the law of Moses were off limits to Israel. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy are explicit in their instructions that we're there to avoid any form of engagement with these kind of animals. Check out Leviticus 11, 7 and 8. It says, The pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It's unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. 
And Bible scholars have suggested all sorts of reasons for why the Israelite people were commanded to keep their distance from pigs. Some have suggested it's because of their smell or their habits or, or the danger of eating them uncooked. But the reason given in the law and the Torah is simply that they have divided hoofs, uh, that they have cloven feet and don't chew the cud. Simply put, God declares that some animals are clean and some animals are unclean. Cows and sheep and pigeons and goats and scaly fish, they're fine. But camels and shellfish and snakes and birds of prey and animals with paws, they are not. And here's the kicker. The worst of them all, the one that is the most detestable is pigs. When the prophet Isaiah was trying to describe how deprived people can be, among other metaphors, he uses this descriptor. He says that they're people who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold the broth of impure meat. I imagine that the readers would have probably looked at that and been like, ah, no, these evil Gentiles eat the flesh of pigs. Nasty. And so going back to Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, it's not hard to imagine why Peter was probably shocked when he saw pigs and all sorts of other unclean animals that that he'd been taught to avoid. Nowadays, it's pretty normal for people to dream about bacon. Or at least I think it's normal. But, but Peter, a devout Jew, to be dreaming about pigs, it probably would have been like a vegan hitting up a Wendy's drive-thru and ordering a Baconator. It was just so far outside the scope of what they should be thinking about or envisioning. And then the angel of the Lord comes to them and doesn't say to avoid that animal, but says instead that he should eat it and says what God has made clean, he shouldn't call common. Okay, what's that all about? It seems like a bit of a bizarre footnote in the story of the early church. It's kind of weird, right? Like, think about it. In verse 10, which we just read, Peter's waiting for his lunch. Someone's prepping him some garlic naan and some hummus. And he falls into this trance where he sees shellfish and birds and snakes and pigs. And he's told to eat them. To me, it seems more like an opener to a show on the Food Net with, uh, with Guy Fieri. And, and it's something that, that should be there rather than on the pages of Scripture. But if we keep reading in chapter 10 and 11, we see that Peter's vision was so much more than just Jews receiving license to participate in an all-American barbecue cookout or a surf and turf feast. God was using this imagery of pigs and other unclean animals to communicate a message that would actually change the trajectory of the church. See, here's how the story goes. Peter wakes up from the trance and he meets Cornelius, a Gentile, and he goes to Cornelius' home for dinner and that's when everything starts to click. He's like, that's what this vision was all about. And here's what he says. He's at dinner with these Gentiles, and Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate and visit with anyone of other nations. In other words, he's saying, you know what we're doing right now, breaking bread together. Me a Jew, you a Gentile. This is not allowed. And then he says, but God has shown me, and this is key, God has shown me that that I should not call any person common or unclean. Just a side note, I think it's smart that Peter doesn't share the whole vision with the Gentiles. Even Peter, who's not always the most diplomatic of the apostles, was emotionally intelligent enough to intentionally leave out the part of his vision where his hosts, the Gentiles, are compared to pigs and scallops and snakes. But in all seriousness, the result of that vision was extraordinary. By the end of chapter 10, the first ever group of Gentiles are baptized in water. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and passionately worshiping God. And then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the gospel is spread to many, many Gentiles all over the ancient world. Today, there's upwards of two billion of us. And so I don't think it's an overstatement to say that you and me, that non-Jewish people wouldn't have received the good news of Jesus and been adopted into the family of God 
if it wasn't for that vision that Peter had of pigs and other unclean animals. It communicates this welcome of God. Peter says these beautiful words. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation, those who fear him and do what is right. The gospel wasn't only for the Jews. It wasn't only for Israel. It was for all people. And God was beginning this great restorative work, calling all people to himself unifying every tribe and tongue, every nation, welcoming them, inviting them to find home in the family of God, to participate in his new creation order under the rule and reign of King Jesus. It was this incredibly unifying moment where where who was in and who was out was completely flipped on its head. The family of God had nothing to do with race or circumcision or ceremonial cleansing. Instead, the only prerequisite for adoption into God's family was receiving the good news of the gospel, that Jesus had died and rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, receiving that free gift of salvation by faith through grace, and then committing allegiance to him. It wasn't about a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. And then 10 years later, the Apostle Paul wrote a very similar thing. He said, you know, for there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we're one. No matter our ethnicity, our working class, our gender, no matter our political leanings or the language we speak, we can be so different from one another, and yet we're one in Christ. We're unified because we belong to him. And the thing that unifies us, our risen king, is so much greater than anything that could divide us. But here's the reality. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget. Gosh, even Peter forgets later in the story. He had this powerful vision and he sees with his own eyes that the Holy Spirit is falling on the Gentile believers. He eats a meal with the Gentiles. He welcomes them into the body of Christ. And then seven or eight years later, he's in Antioch with some Jewish friends and he stops eating with the Gentile believers. He cuts them out. In order to fit in with the boys or the more conservative Jewish Christians, he sort of, he kind of reinstates the Jewish-Gentile divide in Antioch. To go to his house party, you have to be Jewish. Look at Galatians 2, 12 and 13. This is Paul the Apostle writing, and he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I'm concerned that the disunity and division that we see in the church today is leading people astray. And and to be clear, it's not disunity around Jew or Gentile. Most of us are non-Jewish. Most of us are Gentiles. And we're quite comfortable in our adoption into the family of God. But the church at large large has become so divided right now over secondary issues and have cut each other out over opinions of, of, of things like political things and policies over uh, masks and lockdowns and vaccinations and all the surrounding issues of this past year. If we were to modernize Paul's instruction to the Galatians, or I think if Paul was going to write those words to the church today, he might say something similar to this. He might say, for there's neither vaccinated or unvaccinated. There's neither pro-mask or anti-maskers. There's no, neither conservative or liberals for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But so easily we forget. 
and we divide over these things. We join with the rest of society in ostracizing one another because of differences in opinions, and we start to tear people apart. The division of the church, the way we talk to one another, as well as the way we talk about the world, it doesn't only affect the way that that people engage with us as private citizens, but as ambassadors of Christ, as image bearers of him in the world, it actually affects the way that people view Jesus. My brother Josh is an amazing, kind, funny, always-got-your-back kind of human. One of my favorite people in the whole world. And Josh grew up in the same Christian home that I did. He went to Bible college after high school, and he was on a trajectory to become a pastor. Now, I don't want to oversimplify or misrepresent the depth of questioning and wrestling that Josh did in, in his faith through his early 20s. But I do know this, and Josh and I had a conversation about this very thing last week, and I asked him if it was okay for me to share this. But Josh's Christian faith fell apart not so much because he had a problem with Jesus or his teachings. He actually still loves the Bible and holds many of the ethics taught in Scripture. But Josh's faith really unwound as he regrettably experienced people in our family and in our community bombarding him with videos and articles and memes and sharp kind of shouting into a megaphone type conversations about a politically driven nationalist version of the gospel. He couldn't seem to disassociate Jesus' people, who could be harsh and rude and cutting and disunified, from the the one they claimed to worship. And the things that they were passionately proclaiming as the gospel looked very little, if anything, like the good news we find in Scripture. And so he and many of his friends were so deeply wounded by people who used their Christian platform to prop up agendas and ideologies that, at best, were a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching, and at worst, were a dark, twisted use of the gospel for personal or political gain. Josh no longer considers himself a Christian. And so maybe it's worth me saying that really practically, the things that we post on social media, the opinions that we have, and we all have opinions, I have opinions, I have concerns about the moment that we find ourselves in, Uh, but the way that we express those things, even if they're right, even if they're true, if they're not shared in love, they can actually have a really damaging effect and can bring about disunity in the body of Christ and can ultimately lead people astray. Where are we divided? Where have we let our own preferences or opinions separate us from one another and build up walls between us? Acts chapter 10 reminds us that that the folks around the table, those ones that we like and those ones that we don't like, the ones that are gathered around the person of Jesus, our beloved sons and daughters of God, And the way that the world will know that we belong to him is not by a clever argument or a fight for our freedoms or a stance against sin or or a pithy Facebook post. The way that everyone is going to know that we are his, that we are truly part of the family of God is by our love for one another. To love doesn't mean that we agree with everything. It doesn't mean that we can't have differences in opinion and challenge one another in an iron sharpens iron kind of way. You know, Jesus' 12 disciples were a smorgasbord of of people from all sorts of backgrounds and opinions, zealots and tax collectors and fishermen. But to be unified in Christ is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's Christ who unifies us. And when we keep our eyes on him, all of the other differences that maybe seemed so big start to fade away. Okay, as we close, let's circle back to our big theme for today. Let's bring it back to pigs. In a lot of ways, we are like pigs. Earlier I asked uh, this silly question. I said, how can something that smells so bad when it's alive smell so great when it isn't? Uh, 
How can death transform something that's so filthy and untouchable into something with such incredible taste and a beautiful aroma? Well, that's exactly what happens to us. In a spiritual sense, we were that filthy, dirty pig in a pigsty rolling around in the mess and the dirt, incapable of cleaning ourselves up. But, but in Christ, we've been made clean. We've been purified from our sin and now offer ourselves as this fragrant offering to God who makes common things clean. It's the pig paradox. Death, in our case, the death of Jesus, has taken that which was filthy and untouchable and has made it into something that is beautiful, a beautiful aroma by the grace of God. Well, let me close with this quote from Andrew Wilson. He says this. He says, In Christ, pigs become bacon. It's the welcome of God. Those who you wouldn't have wanted in the garden for all their stinking and snorting and snuffling experience death and find themselves welcomed into the kitchen for everyone to savor. Stench dies, impurity is washed away. We who were once unclean become a pleasing, crispy, tasty, aromatic offering to God. Therefore, what God has made clean, do not let anyone call uncommon. I love that. In Christ, pigs become bacon. And so next time you see a pig or or you eat pork chops or you smell some bacon, I want you to remember that because of Jesus, we've been brought from death to life. Things that were dirty. We were dirty and he has made us clean. We've been welcomed into the family of God. And to those of you who are vegan and had a hard time connecting with this, maybe we'll zero in on tofu in, in the coming week. We love you, church. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash railcity to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of CA Church.